Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... This is a very measured step towards treating drug use like a human rights and a health issue. And we don't have any concerns about people coming into Canberra as a kind of a drug holiday spot. The ACT will decriminalise illicit drugs this weekend. We have all the details. Also, a new report shows how significant it is to treat mental health as a human right. And later today... We do dispute resolution. I mean, for those people listening, they'd know if you're in the federal jurisdiction and a business had a blue with another business, in the federal jurisdiction, that's the federal court. A new podcast will support small businesses navigating through red tape. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the bushfire season has already started and Central and North Queensland are the latest regions to be affected. In some places on the Western Down Regional Council, residents are in evacuation centres across Dolby and Chinchilla. Last night in Mount Isa, residents were told to monitor warnings and be prepared to leave, and it's the first time a water-bombing aircraft flew around the town. Today, the update received to Mount Isa is good news, but they will continue being alert. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso started asking Deputy Mayor of Mount Isa City Council Phil Barwick for an update about the bushfires in the region. Frank, it's largely under control at the present time. We are expecting some higher winds today, around 50 kilometres an hour, to come through, and so the authorities will be watching that closely. We had the highway closed last night for quite a few hours, but it was reopened again, and there may be more closures today. So that's the highway to the east towards Townsville from Mount Isa. So the other part to that is we've got a uh, piece of equipment here, a fire bomber aeroplane, so that's picking up water from the lake and dropping it. And that's been very, very effective in us being able to, um, you know, secure the, the extremities of the town. And it's allowing our uh, heavy equipment to go in and grade the roads and grade fire breaks around those areas where we think it's necessary. That's fantastic news considering um, that things were looking pretty tight with the weather and uh, the emergency warnings being issued. Yeah, look, as I said, it's, uh, it's quite contained at the moment, but it's still threatening in different places. Up to the north, there's another fire that's close to one of the mines, Lady Loretta, which is, uh, again, it's been contained on site by the mine, but it's quite a large um, front going through there. Will uh, emergency authorities be issuing any update to the current warnings uh, online? Yeah, they, they will be. They've downgraded Lake Moondara now, but we've still got the road closed out to the north here of the city. So that road's um, closed for indefinitely at the moment until that fire right goes right through. Uh, we did have a fishing classic here this weekend, so that's been um, closed down as well, been cancelled. So unfortunately, it's an annual event we hold here where we we have a prize for the best barra and that sort of thing. So that's unfortunate, but we've um, had, to, had to stop that event. That's a shame. Um, Do you have an idea of how many, apart from the uh, water bomber, how many appliances and firefighters are on the ground fighting um, these uh, fires around Mount Isa? 
Yeah, sure. We've got not only do we have the fire bomber, but there's a uh, fire spotting plane coming up from New South Wales today as well, and so they'll be looking for outbreaks um, around the area here, which is um, fantastic. We'll be able to get to them a lot quicker. The uh, appliances are being provided by Glencore, Mount Isa Mines, and also by Council, Mount Isa City Council. So um, we'd probably have, I'd estimate, around six to eight water trucks on the road. We'd also have uh, some really large pieces of equipment from the mine called Moxies um, that are, are carry around about 40,000 litres, I believe. And um, we are applying a lot of dozers from the mine and also from Council, dozers and graders as well, just to, to continue with the... Um, the fire breaks around the city. You'll be keeping an eye on the weather over the weekend. What's the outlook and how is that going to affect any uh, preparations or advice or warnings you may be issuing? Uh, look, we will issue warnings about the potential. It's a high fire danger here, so there's you know there's certain requirements around that. Both these fires that are running at the moment started from mechanical failures on vehicles where the... Um, flat tyres sort of gone into the grass and started a fire. So that's the sort of tinderbox conditions that we have at the moment with the wind coming through and the dry, lots of dry fuel from the, you know, the long grass that's, that's died off. What's your advice to affected residents in the area today and over the weekend? Uh, just to be vigilant, uh, be aware there's a lot of smoke around to try and stay out of the way of, you know, the fire trucks and the water trucks that will be working in those areas. And also, if you know, they do spot any outbreaks at all, just to get quickly onto the um, Queensland Fire Emergency Services so that they can be, be stopped. We've got units in town ready to go to, uh, you know, attend to anything that might break out in town. But uh, generally speaking, uh, there's bulk of the resources is on the fires that are uh, the fronts that are outside of town there. Be alert, but not alarmed, perhaps. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. and to see um, if the you know how far it pushes it. The, the direction of the wind, as I understand it, is not likely to change. It's going to keep pushing in the same direction. So we're able to predict pretty much where uh, these fires are going to going to go to. That was Deputy Mayor of Mount Isa City Council, Phil Barwick, ending the report by National Radio News. Frank Bonacorso. And for more information about bushfires in Queensland, go to qfes.qld.gov.au. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. Tomorrow, new laws on decriminalizing the possession of illicit drugs will kick off in the ACT, being the first jurisdiction of doing it in Australia. It means anyone in the territory caught with small quantities of illegal drugs for personal use could be fined $100 or diverted to health education instead of being arrested. Health advocates say new laws in the ACT will give people who use or experiment with drugs the chance to redeem themselves and lead productive lives in society. But the opposition say it's a red carpet for drug use. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso asked Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, Chris Goh, 
his thoughts about the opposition statement. Yeah, it's a common misconception about decriminalisation that it's going to increase drug use and actually increase. I mean, I'd just say that actually this is a very measured step towards treating drug use like a human rights and a health issue, and we don't have any concerns about people coming in to use Canberra as a kind of a drug holiday spot. One of those reasons is because under the legislation, the drugs are still confiscated from the person by the police, and also discretion is involved. Uh, and so if the police do think that or feel that somebody is taking advantage of the laws, and they do have, they still retain the power to charge someone with possession of that drug. So it's not something that uh, my colleagues or I in the sector are particularly worried about. What kind of circumstances would lead to police using that stronger discretion to charge? Well, I mean, I obviously I'm not a police officer, so I, I'm hesitant to talk for police. But, you know, Karma uh, has spent a last year or so in discussions with ACT Health, uh, the Canberra Health Service and ACT Policing. And, and I think that in the vast majority of cases, they'll be looking to divert people through the simple drug offence mechanism that we have created. But I do say, you know, if somebody, if, if there is an obvious case where someone is flouting the law, then I think that would probably be a circumstance where police may, may question whether a simple drug offence notice was appropriate. I want to take you back uh, 25 or so years ago regarding the ACT's right to make, uh, to enact legislation and the federal liberal position is at odds with its ACT counterpart. Elizabeth Lee, uh, the liberals leader in the ACT, fears it would contravene territory rights. Is there the fear amongst advocates like yourself that the Commonwealth under the current government or a future liberal government could step in and create legislation that would wipe out um, the ACT's power, uh, you know, power in this respect. Well, look, I think this one has really brought um, Canberrans together from both sides of the political spectrum around the ACT's right to self-govern. I haven't heard anybody within the ACT say that they would like, including Liberals, saying that they would like more uh, federal interventions in the ACT. Uh, of course, it is a fear of everybody's, and the federal government has done this several times in the ACT already, including uh, vetoing the heroin trial in the 90s. So, so yes, it is a real uh, concern, but we do know that we have good bipartisan support from the ACT in terms of our self-government, and it's something that, as Canberrans, we will continue to, to strive for, to, to make sure that, you know, we are governing ourselves. The Alcohol and Drug Foundation says just 22%, one in five people, think cannabis possession should now be a criminal offence. To you as an advocacy foundation, do you um, take that as a shift in public perception on the so-called war against drugs? Yes, uh, certainly there has been a major shift in the last decade or so towards an understanding that the war against drugs is a war against people who use drugs and that it's not an appropriate response to a health and social issue, especially one that is, you know, that a lot of people in society now do use drugs and cannabis. So I do think that the reason that the ACT is doing this is because we see across the globe, we see a shift towards 
supporting people and not punishing them. And cannabis is, in a lot of senses, less dangerous than other drugs. And certainly, um, in terms of mortalities, there are none in terms of cannabis. And there are, of course, the two leaders are alcohol and tobacco. And so really, when you look at it like that, all of the harm is coming from those drugs that are legal, well not all of it, but the majority of it. And then for the illicit drugs, the harms are not just coming from the drug, but also coming from the criminalization of drugs. And so so that is at the basis of this move, is an acknowledgement that actually criminalizing drugs has a really significant negative impact and causes deaths. We've got an unregulated market at the moment. And that in itself causes a myriad of problems as well. Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, Chris Gaudet, speaking with National Radio News, Frank Bonacorso. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Bundaberg on Coral Coast Radio 94.7 FM, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. The World Health Organization and the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights have jointly released a new report called Mental Health, Human Rights and Legislation, Guidance and Practice. The aim of the report is to support countries like Australia to reform laws to end human rights abuses and increase access to quality mental health care. According to the report, human rights abuses and coercive practices in mental health care supported by existing legislation and policies are still common. The Wires Netafini asked co-author of the report, Natalie Drew, why this report is so significant. It's the first time that we have a comprehensive guide to support countries to be able to develop and implement laws in the area of mental health that are you know, actually aligned with the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and, of course, other international human rights standards. So as of today, we have, you know, we, we have 187 countries that have actually ratified the convention, the CRPD, and that's the vast majority of countries in the world. So many of these countries have actually been struggling um, to understand what the implications are of this convention in the area of mental health and what it means for mental health related law specifically as well going forward. So basically, this publication can show how a rights-based approach can really transform mental health systems and mental health services in countries so that services that are provided are of good quality, uh, that they're really truly able to meet the needs of people using the services, and that they do so in a way that really fully respects their rights as well. You mentioned there was a number of, of countries that have ratified the guidelines. Is Australia one of them? Yes, uh, Australia was one of the early adopters of the uh, convention, early ratifiers, yes. What does that mean for us? So it has huge implications. When a country ratifies a convention, they basically state that they will uh, meet its obligations. And so they will 
take legislative policy and other measures to integrate the different elements, the different rights of the convention into their national frameworks. So that's what it means. But what is challenging is to really understand what the different rights mean uh, in terms of the mental health context specifically. And that's what this document is about. And so what were your findings about mental health services around the world? Starting with the positive, and that's that more and more countries are recognising the importance of mental health. We've seen with COVID an increasing concern about mental health and mental health services, and also that more and more countries are recognising the need to improve mental health care more generally. However, there are still many pressing issues that need to be overcome, and these issues are definitely not new. So here we're talking about, for for example, Uh, the ongoing reliance on institutional care in many countries and the lack of community-based mental health services. Then another issue is around the use of coercive practices, but also the violence, the abuse, the neglect that we see in many mental health services across the world as well. There's, of course, the rising rates of involuntary admission and treatment that we're seeing in countries everywhere, including high-income countries. And then another issue that I think is important to highlight is that there is an overemphasis in many services, if not most services, on the issues of diagnosis, medication and symptom reduction at the expense of more holistic approaches that are person-centred, that address people's needs in a very comprehensive way, looking at the individual as a whole. So some of these are some of the sort of pressing issues that we're looking at in many mental health services across the world. And what's important to note there is that um, these practices are actually supported in many mental health laws and policies in countries. And that's why it's so important for countries to start to look at reviewing and revising their laws to align with current international human rights standards to make sure that their services are actually meeting people's needs and respecting their rights. I think a lot of listeners would be shocked to hear that people are being treated so badly. Why why is this the case, Natalie? I think there's lots of reasons. I think that, you know, people often state the lack of resources is a a reason, that they're faced with challenges in terms of lack of resources, and, and that is partly true for sure. But there is also issue, there are also issues around attitudes and stigma around mental health. People with mental health conditions are often considered as, you know, lacking capacity to make decisions about their life. They're considered to not be able to hold down a job. They're given very disempowering messages in many cases that they're not going to be able to have hopes and goals for their, for their life and, and so on. So there are these sort of very stigmatizing attitudes, which means that you end up with services that take away people's ability to make decisions about their treatment. So then they are completely at the whim of a third party, whether that be a mental health professional or a family member and so on. And then also, I think that the other sort of stigmatizing attitudes that people have towards people with with mental health conditions is that they're potentially dangerous and volatile. Rather than put anyone in danger, let's put them under coercion, let's put them in seclusion, restraint and so on. That was Technical Officer for the Policy, Law and Human Rights Unit at the World Health Organization in Switzerland, Natalie Drew. Ending the story by The Wires, Neta Fini. A new podcast called Small Business Matters, giving information to small businesses, was launched this week on Triple H in Northern Sydney. 
According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 97.3% of all businesses in Australia are small businesses with less than 20 employees. But to navigate through red tape from the government is always a challenge for small businesses, and this is one of the topics discussed in the podcast. The Wires contributor from Triple H, Alexi Boyd, started asking Australian small business and family enterprise ombudsman Bruce Bilson what support they provide to businesses. We, we do a couple of things just to help your, your audience. Um, we do dispute resolution. I mean, for those people listening, they'd know if you're in the federal jurisdiction and a business had a blue with another business and you thought, oh, we'll sort it out, sort it out in court. In the federal jurisdiction, that's the federal court. Now, that's a couple of hundred thousand dollars and two years to wait. Now, tell me a small business that can handle either of those things. Um, and so we get involved with dispute resolution. We try and work through and sort out and support resolving those grievances so that people don't have to go to court, hopefully with relationships intact, and they can get back to business. And we see this in areas of codes that the federal government's introduced, franchising, food and grocery, the oil industry, that, that sort of stuff. We get involved in that, horticulture, those sorts of things. So that's that's quite useful. And we also help with a tax concierge service. So if you're locked in a blue with the tax office and you're thinking about, you know, going to the administrative appeals tribunal to challenge uh, a, a, a judgment on what your tax liabilities are. We, we we get alongside those small and family businesses and reality check whether there's really something that's worth challenging and if so, what the law might, might say. And then we assist them in onboarding into the AAT so that, you know, the matters of law are clear and, you know, we're not wasting anyone's time and the small business can, can make their case as well as they can. So we do that. Interestingly, out of that 6,500 types of matters we work with each year, a whole lot of case studies pop up. You spoke about case studies mm -hmm. and how critical they are to really open the eyes of government and explain to them what the real life circumstances are. Are there other ways that people get in touch with you for other yeah, reasons? Well, we have a network of small business facing industry associations. We work with about three dozen of those. So we get information coming through that. Um, we also are very connected out in the field. I've had the, had the joy of being in Australia's largest agricultural field days uh, a few weeks back and then over to South Australia and into uh, Victoria again. And uh, so we, we travel quite a lot and engage, you know, often with our small business commissioner colleagues at a state level. We work quite closely with federal regulators. So I chair an outfit called FRAG, the Federal Regulator Agency Group. You know, our insights about what's going on in the small business community. But those case studies we touched on, really important because that's field evidence. So in a way, Aspifio is like the connective tissue. You bring together other agencies. Does that bubble up to the surface a key policy area that everyone's hearing or in particular you're hearing yeah, from? Yeah, it, it can. It, it's, it's often not that well organised. Like, you know, life's not that tidy. And, and government's I, not that tidy. Well, and government's busy. You know, mm -hmm. there's 170,000, I think, off the top of my head, Commonwealth public servants. But, you know, it's a big it's a big animal, you know, mm. and, and I suppose I often talk about the most powerful thing being inertia uh, in both a positive and a not-so-positive way. I mean, if things have got life and legs, there's awfully been an awful lot of legwork gone into getting a program or some policy idea moving and you feel like it's almost impossible to stop. The flip side is if 
you've got a you know a great fresh idea that no one's talking about, there's an awful lot of energy and work needed to get that moving. So so what we try and do is try and stay situationally aware about what's going on and steer it into a better lane for small and family businesses. So what in your mind can small businesses do, apart from keeping an eye on the SBFO mm. social pages and website and find out what they can do? How can they be more involved or be more aware of yeah. what government's doing? It's so complex. A lot in what you just said then. Let me see if I can unpack it a little bit. I mean, the, the, the world is run by people who turn up. Now, if you turn up and surface and share your experience, your insights, your ideas about how things could be better, you're infinitely more likely to bring about positive change than if you just sat in your lounge room and grumbled about something that's not going the way you'd like it. Like or it or to sat be. on social media and grumbled well, about yeah, it. Well, th- that's right. I mean, the thing is those, those ahas, as I call them, those little sparks can be really quite important. And when they're coming from someone who's living and breathing that business every day and they come across a piece of regulation or some compliance obligation or it can be sorted out by something they're already doing, that's valuable because, you know, we, we don't use deregulation as a phrase because in most cases regulation has been created, added to because something needed to be addressed. That was Australian small business and family enterprise ombudsman Bruce Bilson ending the story by Triple H, Alexi Void. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan, thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.